Well, we are taking some time to look at some of the stories that Jesus told. Uh, We most often refer to those as parables, and they were stories that did have a purpose. And I want to encourage you to find Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. We're going to be digging into another one of those stories uh, that Jesus had this morning. As you're finding that, I I remember an interview I saw with a a rather well-known college uh, coach, uh, and he was asked in the interview, he said, Coach, how important is the will to win? How important is the will to win? And he thought for a moment and he said, well, that, that's certainly an important quality. He said, but you know, the quality that's more important is the will to prepare. Because there's, there's a lot of folks that talk about in the midst of a game, in the midst of it, that they have this great will to win. I really want to win. Everybody that competes wants to win. He said, the difference is those who have the will to prepare. Because what shows up on on game day is a reflection of all the preparation that's gone in to the moments before that. You know, as I I thought about that, oh, that's true, isn't it? I mean, it really is true that, that, that preparation is essential in every area of our life. Whether it's physical or financial, whether it's a business or personal, uh, whether you're talking about uh, relationships or spirituality or, or scholastic or whatever it might be, preparation is essential in every area of our lives. And Jesus told a story in Matthew 25 about the essential nature of preparation of being prepared for that which he said is inevitably going to take place. So I want to encourage you just to to follow along with me. I want to read aloud Matthew 25, those first 13 verses, as we just tune in to this parable that's sometimes been referred to as as the parable of the, the, the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, let's just uh, be honest. Just reading that parable seems a little bit strange to us because we're not familiar with 
with those wedding customs, right? The, the things don't necessarily connect with us. Jesus, as he was teaching that to that original audience, there were things that they would have picked up on, nuances that they would have instinctively understood that are somewhat lost to us because uh, we just do weddings so radically differently. And so uh, in order to maybe help us to truly understand this parable, I think it would help us to spend a little time at getting some background on wedding customs of the day. And I know that that's not maybe like one of your top 10 uh, things that you ever wanted to know about Jewish wedding customs way back in the day. Uh, but hang with me for a little bit because actually what you'll find is that as we begin to understand some of these wedding customs, it not only speaks to this parable, but it speaks to so much of the imagery of what Jesus used and talked about as we have it in the Gospels and even some of the things that you find in the New Testament letters. So we can think of kind of three big stages, if you will, uh, of a Jewish weddings in the day. Uh, and the first would have been kind of an arrangement of the marriage. And that would have often been done by a parent, or maybe in some cases they would have enlisted the services of a matchmaker or, or something. And so uh, there wasn't like dating and romance, and it would have just, I mean, if that was the only way, like there'd be a whole industry of romantic comedy movies that wouldn't exist, right? Uh, but but they, they was like arranged very often when they they were young. And we've had families uh, that have been a part of our family that have come from different cultures, been a part of the church family here. And they actually, their marriage was arranged. Uh, their marriage was arranged by their fa parent family, by their parents. Uh, and it works. <laughs> uh, it works in different cultures. And so there was this, this arrangement, this agreement that was entered into. And then came the, this second stage was a, a betrothal. And there was kind of a formal ceremony that was a part of that and, and different things that were done and much higher investment than what we tend to refer to as engagement uh, in our culture, right? Uh, that actually, uh, the betrothal, the only way to break that once you entered into that was, was through a divorce. Uh, it was that taken that seriously. So when you have, you come to the birth narratives of Jesus, for example, and Joseph and Mary, they're, they're betrothed. And when Joseph hears that she's expecting a child, obviously where his mind goes, and so he he's, wants to put her away. He wants to divorce her. He has to enter into this to break this off because it is, it is that important. And then comes the third stage, which is uh, when they actually come together as husband and wife. And that's kind of what this particular parable, that moment when the bridegroom comes uh, for the bride. And actually in the Hebrew, it's uh, nisium. And that, that comes from a Hebrew word that means to carry. Uh, and the bridegroom comes to carry uh, the bride off uh, to their new life, to their new home together. But there were certain things that were going to take place that had to take place during that betrothal period along the way. Uh, the, the bride had to make preparations. Some of it was uh, preparing garments and linens and uh, that sort of thing. And you see some of that reference uh, even throughout the New Testament letter 
letters about a bride being adorned, a bride being prepared uh, for the bridegroom. In Revelation 19, it talks about uh, the the good works or the good deeds being uh, an adornment that we bring uh, to this relationship with Christ. Uh, The bridegroom uh, would be preparing a place. Uh, and he would be preparing a home, and very often that would be like a building an addition on a parent's home or something. Sometimes it might be a, a separate thing. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about the words of Jesus in John 14. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. It's just part of this rich imagery, this bridegroom who has gone off. He is preparing a place for us, and at some point, he is coming again to take us to himself. And so this image is not just, uh, this background is not just for this parable, uh, but it, it's, it's in, inundated throughout a lot of the, the New Testament along the way. And, and there's so many more details, but we won't, won't go into all of those. But, but what would happen once the place had been prepared, the father of the groom actually was the one who kind of gave the, the signal, go. It's like, he, okay, gave approval, it's ready. Now you can go get your bride. And again, tie that into what Jesus said. Remember when they asked him, they asked Jesus, uh, when, when is all this going to take place? And Jesus said, only the Father. Only the Father knows the time and the seasons. The Father who would give permission, who would, would say, now is the time to go get your bride. And so the bridegroom would come, and he would come, uh, and the bride would have a sense, it usually was about a year of a betrothal, but would have a sense of, of kind of this window of time where, where it was going to take place, where the bridegroom was going to come for the bride, but did not know the exact day or the exact hour. Again, you see that throughout uh, the New Testament, Right? Uh, and he would come, and part of even the, the, the game of it, if you will, is to try to surprise them, even to catch them sleeping along the way. And so oftentimes would, would come in the middle of the night. And this was a big event. Sometimes, again, in our culture, we think about, okay, a wedding is for like just these folks that we invite, Right? Uh, and we put it on the calendar usually months in advance. We may send out something, save the date, right? It's going to be this date and time, months in advance. And then weeks in advance, the formal invitation goes out and all of those things. Well, that wouldn't have been this, this kind of, it would have been this, this sense, the whole community, the village would have been involved in this. And it would have been a huge celebration. Uh, and one of the Jewish Proverbs says that from everybody from 6 to 60 is involved. And so it's this huge social event, this huge celebration. And when the bridegroom comes for the bride, takes her, and there's not just going to be like a 30-minute ceremony and, and a quick reception afterwards and they go off to the honeymoon. No, 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 no. Uh, they there is this, they kind of like stay, actually. And the, there's a seven-day wedding feast that takes place. So again, go back to John's gospel. Remember when Jesus, one of his first public miracle, he turned water into wine. Where did he do that? 
He did it at a wedding feast. And it was after several days because these things go on for days. There's this huge celebration. So the bridegroom comes, and part of the deal was that when he's arriving, there's one of his friends, one of the folks in his party, if you will, go, has to go forth and announce the bridegroom is coming. And very often, that would be followed by the shofar, a blasting of the trumpet to announce the arrival of the bridegroom. You might want to take note of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about the return of Christ, talks about it will be accompanied by the shout of an archangel and the blowing of the trumpet. Again, it's this this wedding imagery all over this, and this this bridegroom returning. And so he shows up, and it's unexpected, and and they're they're sleeping, and half of the the group of ten ladies is prepared because it's nighttime, right? It's nighttime, and and we live in a culture where we're surrounded by light. We have to to go away somewhere to escape light, right? We're surrounded by street lights and screen lights and everything else, right? I mean, our worst, like, case is we get desperate and have to reach for our flashlight app on our phone, right? I mean, you know, we, we just, we're surrounded by light, and it's almost hard for us to imagine stepping out and there not being any light. And so if you are going to make this trip with this bridal party, you're going to have to have some light. And it was also part of the festivities. And so to have a torch would have probably been made up of some rags and had been soaked in oil. And as the oil burned off, it had to be replenished in order for the flame to continue to have light to make the trip. Five of them not only had the torch, but they also had extra oil. Five of them had the torch, had the rag, had some oil, but didn't have enough to replenish. So they didn't have enough for the journey. So we have this difference here along the way. So all of that uh, is this background that brings us to this parable. So I want you to see quickly three ways these young women, three things they kind of had in common, and then one huge, huge difference. The first is they were all invited to the celebration, right? I mean, they were there because they, they had been invited to take play, part of this celebration. They, uh, they were invited, hey, be a part of this. We don't want you to miss this. You are invited. Not only were they invited, but they desired to be a part of it. I mean, they had already at least taken some of those first steps, and they were there, and they had torches and uh, probably appropriate attire. And so there, there was something in them that desired to be a part of that celebration. And that was true of all 10 of these young ladies. But it's also true, they all grew drowsy and fell asleep. Uh, And again, I think I've, I've said earlier in this series, but sometimes people try to make every like phase of a parable mean something. And well, this is a warning against sleeping and stuff. And they all slept. They all slept. We all need sleep, right? Don't do it now, but we all need sleep, right? We we all need sleep, right? Uh, The wise and the foolish, they they both slept, right? So that that they all grew drowsy, they all it was just a it was a biological need. It was it was just part of the rhythm of all of our lives, right? So those things are in common. But the one huge difference, and we've already alluded to it, five were ready, five were unprepared. 
Even though they were all invited, even though they all desired to be a part of it, even though they all slept and knew that at any possible moment the bridegroom could come, five were prepared, five were unprepared. And their preparation revealed itself in the crisis. In the crisis of the moment when the bridegroom shows up. And that's where preparation (laughs) surfaces, right? Sometimes you can't tell the difference in preparation in life until the moment of testing, the moment of crisis, the moment of opportunity. That's where the preparation begins to reveal itself. And their different preparations resulted in different outcomes. Different preparations led to different outcomes. Those who had not only the torches but the extra oil were prepared for the moment of opportunity, the moment of crisis. They were able to partake of, be a part of, be included in this wedding feast, which, by the way, is another imagery that the New Testament uses, the the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb that we'll be a part of in Revelation uh, 19 and other places along the way. Uh, So they were included in that five who weren't fully prepared, even though they desired, even though they had been invited, didn't get to go in. The doors were shut. The responsibilities of the wedding party would be, at some point, the the friends of the groom would be to keep those doors shut. Five were ready, five were on. Different preparations resulted in different outcomes. December of 2004... Maybe you remember the horrible tsunami that hit in in Thailand, Indonesia, some of those areas. Devastating death toll out of that. It was was just hard to conceive of that many lives lost in, in a moment. But there was some interesting case studies out of that. One was of a of a small group of fishermen, uh, referred to by different names, among them the Morgan Sea Gypsies. Small tribe, about 181 fishermen and their families. And they spent most of the year out out on the sea fishing uh, between Indonesia and uh, Thailand uh, and India. But in December, they would come back to the shelters on the beaches uh, in Thailand. And in December of 2004, in the hours uh, right before this killer tsunami crashed, uh, the sea gypsies living there on the beach, I mean, they were like front line, bullseye of where this tsunami was going to hit. They noticed as the water rushed out. But what they had that other folks didn't have was the collective wisdom of their people. And the wisdom had been passed down through the generations that when the water goes out swiftly like that, it will return in that quantity. And so some of the elders there understood, they remembered. And so when the water rushed out, there, there, was, there was a tendency for people, they, they're seeing there's fish and there's all sorts of other things laying there. You can walk out there and grab stuff uh, that you've never been able to see and do before. But they, they quickly gathered this small band of people and they said, we're going to the high ground. We're going to the high ground. And you know the rest of the story. The water that had rushed out so quickly came crashing back with deadly force. 
killing tens of thousands all over. But the Morgan Sea Gypsies survived. Because in that moment, they were prepared. They were prepared with knowledge that had been passed down through the generations. And they were prepared because they acted on that knowledge. Instead of rushing out to gather trinkets and treasures and collect some easy fish, they headed to the high ground and their lives were spared. You see, different preparations always, always, always result in different (coughs) outcomes. So how does this flesh out for you and I? I mean, what does it mean for us to apply this parable today? What does it look like for us to have a different preparation so that we can have a different outcome? Because Jesus tells us that there's just a, a, a warning in this parable at the very end. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. To, to pay attention to your preparation for that moment that is going to come quite unexpectedly. And, and so let me just offer to you just a, a few thoughts of, of application this morning. The first is just to remind ourselves lost opportunities cannot be regained. Lost opportunities cannot be regained. Uh, there come moments in our life where, where God and His sovereignty opens up windows of opportunity for us. And we either are prepared for that moment or we're not. We either step into it with faith or we shrink back from it in fear. We we either miss it because we're too busy with other things or we see it and seize it in the strength and wisdom that he provides. But lost opportunities so very, very often cannot be regained. There is a, a sense of windows in our life, moments of opportunity along the way that we need God's wisdom to help us to see. We need God's grace and courage to help us to be able to seize along the way. Secondly, some things cannot be borrowed. They must be your own. If you haven't made the preparations, the the, the five who did not have the preparation could not borrow from the five that did. There are some things in my life and your life that cannot be borrowed. They must be our own. Character cannot be borrowed. It must be your own. You may have come from a family that has some folks of of high character. You may have some friends and other folks of of high character. Uh, But while you can learn from them, maybe you can even model some things upon them, there comes a point where character cannot be borrowed. It has to be your own. Now, now maybe you were privileged and even had some doorways open to you based on the character of a parent, based on the character of a friend, based on the character of, of a group you were associated with. And that might get you in the door. That might open up an opportunity for you initially, but that character can't continue to be borrowed at some point. It has to be your own. Faith cannot be borrowed. It must be your own. Just because you have a spouse of faith doesn't mean that you are. Just because you came from a family that uh, walked in faith doesn't mean that you do. 
And just because you do is no even guarantee that your children or grandchildren will. Because your friends do doesn't mean you are. Some things cannot be borrowed. They must be your own. Individually, personally, every one of us has to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. It's not something I can borrow from somebody else. Can I be challenged? Can I learn from? Can I be inspired by somebody else's faith? Absolutely. But I can't borrow it. It must be our own. Third observation. It's evident. But Jesus will return without warning. Jesus is going to return without warning. And I know there are folks throughout the centuries who have said, it's going to happen this time or this time, and a lot of folks have set dates, and some of you may have even bought a book somewhere along the way of somebody who, who said, because of this sign and this sign, it's going to happen, and, and this, this blood moon or whatever it might be, and all these things are going to happen, and I just insulted half the room, but, uh, but, but. he will return without warning. And I know that sometimes it sells stuff to kind of say, well, you know, this moment or this moment. Jesus said, you will not know. You will not know. He said, well, yeah, but what about what's going on in the culture and this, that, and the other, and Israel's done that? You will not know. It will return without warning. But flip that. And look at it another way. None of us is guaranteed to be walking around when he returns. It's had a birthday earlier this month. And it was a significant one for me, not so much because of what number it was, but because I now have outlived my father. That my father died one month before he reached this birthday. And that's just kind of been, and maybe it's just my messed up psyche or something, but, uh, but that's been a marker for me. Yeah. And it just really feels like it's all grace <laughs> beyond that. Right. You don't know. He was in his 50s. You don't know. Just past week, a daughter was talking about someone she worked with. Her dad, picture of health, did all the right things. Dropped dead in a moment. Totally shot. And so while we all live with, and this parable reminds us of the reality of Jesus will return without warning. There is also the parallel truth that none of us is guaranteed a tomorrow. Not guaranteed another trip up and down 77. Not guaranteed everything's going to keep working inside like it's been working. Something doesn't burst or erupt. And I don't say that to just like fear monger. But just reality check. Reality check. That's 
Reality 101. And whether it's the return of Jesus or perhaps just the end of our earthly journey, it can happen without any warning. Fourth observation, application, is the moment of examination cannot be the moment of preparation. When the bridegroom shows up and the announcement goes forth and you realize in that moment you're not prepared, at that moment it's too late. The moment of examination cannot be the moment of preparation. Let's put it maybe in the world that some of us have lived in. Did you ever have that experience where you walked into a class in school, whether it was middle school, high school, college, post-grad, whatever it was, and you had this like pop quiz that you just flat out weren't ready for? I mean, cause it had just been one of those weeks, right? It been one of those weeks where you had all of these other things going on, and, and you had this crisis and this mess, and, and your friend came over, and they wanted to stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning because they had this great relationship crisis and all of these things. And, and you were going to study. You really were. You really were. And then came that pop quiz. The moment of examination cannot be the moment of preparation. When I see Jesus coming, I'll get ready. (laughs) When I get a little older, when I get to the end of my life, when I'm on my deathbed, the moment of examination cannot be the moment of preparation. The preparation takes place daily, moment by moment, because we don't know exactly when the moment of examination will be. Which leads to the first, fifth observation application. Uncertainty about the time of Christ's return is no excuse for the neglect of preparation. Well, if I had known, if I had known I was only going to live this long, if I had known I was only going to have this much health, if I had known I was going to be forced out of my job at the end, I would have prepared my retirement better. If I had known... Uncertainty about the time of Christ's return is no excuse for the neglect of preparation. Jesus says, I'm telling you, I'm telling you on the front end that it will come and it will come unexpectedly and it will catch many people totally unprepared. Watch, therefore, For you know neither the day nor the hour. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraqi war. He had flown his 300th mission. And as the war was coming to a close, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately put his crew together and fly home. And as they flew across the ocean to Massachusetts, they, they didn't know they were coming, and they did, didn't let their family know. They wanted to surprise them. And they landed, and they, they got in a vehicle, and his crew dropped him off at his home in western Pennsylvania. And they had driven all through the night, and as they dropped him off in the driveway, as the sun was just coming up, he sees this huge banner across the, the front of the garage that says, Welcome home, Daddy. How in the world did they know? 
He goes in and he, he sees his little kids there and they're, they're kind of half awake and about half dressed getting ready for school that day and they just scream, Daddy! And they run and they grab him and they're so excited. And he looks up and his wife comes down the hall. He said she looks terrific, her hair's fixed, makeup's on, crisp yellow dress. And as he grabs her and hugs her, there's tears he finally is able to kind of get out. How did you know? I mean, how did you know? We didn't even know until a little while ago we were coming. How did you know? She said, I didn't. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be coming home one of these days. And we knew you would try to surprise us. And so we made sure that we were ready every day. We made sure we were ready every day. How about you? In light of the reality of Christ's return, in light of the uncertainty of the length of any of our lives, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you living a life of preparation? And how do you do that? Well, the foundational piece of that is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it only begins as we recognize our need and our inability to meet that need in and of ourselves. That, that I am separated from a holy God because of my rebellion, because of my sin, because I have departed from his way. I've gone my way. And because of that, God's just, fair, rule, judgment upon me would be a separation now and for all eternity from a holy, righteous God. But God in his love did for me what I could have never done for myself. Uh, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus came, gave up the glories of heaven, and entered into this sin-scarled and distorted world. And he, and he lived the life that you and I were called to live and designed to live, created to live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die on a cross. He was buried and he was resurrected and he is coming again someday. And he did all of that so they could offer to you and I forgiveness of our sin and a restoration, a reconciliation of our life with God as it was designed and created to be. But while we might know that, be invited to that, and even desire that, it's only as we prepare for that that it becomes real. And the preparation is when I recognize my need in his provision, and I turn. The Bible talks about repent. It's a change of mind leading to a change of direction. I change, I repent, not trusting in myself, not seeking to run my life independent of him any longer. And I place my trust fully in him, in the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ, trusting him to be the forgiver of my sin, and recognizing him as the rightful leader and Lord of my life from this point forward. Now hear my heart today. I want you to be ready. Because this is not something you can borrow from somebody else. And the only way to be ready is through personal recognition of our need. Repentance and return to him.
to turn and to trust. And here's the invitation for you today. We don't want anybody to be in this room and leave this room without knowing that, knowing that hope, knowing that faith personally. And maybe you've got some questions or maybe you think, well, what about? And we would love to continue a conversation with you about that. And so here's the offer. Here's the invitation. At the end of our service in just a little while, there's going to be some folks hanging out in that back corner right over there, that next steps area. And they're just going to be there to be available to you. Just to, just to answer questions, to, to sit down, to maybe explain a few things. And just to help you take that step toward Jesus Christ. That's foundational to living ready. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you and I to, to think of living a life of preparation, building on that foundation. William Barclay said, the best way to prepare for the coming of Christ is never to forget the presence of Christ. The best way to live this day and every day in light of that day is to never forget the presence of Christ. It's a little prayer that I've been incorporating over the past several weeks now, just in, in my personal prayer time. And it's been beneficial to me, and I'll just commend it to you this morning, if it would help. Just something like, Heavenly Father, I pray this day that I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Heavenly Father, today, help me to live a little more aware of your presence, a little more sensitive to your presence with me, and help me to live to please you more and more. Because the best way to prepare for the coming of Christ is to never forget the presence of Christ. John F. Kennedy, when he was running for president in 1960, would very often quote Colonel Davenport, who was the speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives back in the day. One day in 1789, the sky over Hartford darkened ominously. And some of the representatives glancing out the, the window were, were convinced that the end was at hand. And they were crying out for immediate adjournment. And Davenport rose and said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish candles to be brought. I think that's what Jesus might be saying to you and I today. The reality that Jesus Christ is going to return and it is going to be something to be unexpected. He said, I don't want that to be fearful. I want you to respond in faith. A faith that more and more recognizes and lives in light of the presence of God and more and more seeks to do its duty 
So that if he would come in the next five minutes or another 500 years, whatever it is, if I'm still walking, that he would find me faithfully doing that which pleases him more and more. That's what it looks like to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, please. Oh, Father, would you help us, even in these last few moments that we have in this room, to be more and more aware of your presence? Would you help us, Father, even in these moments to be aware of the activity of your Spirit, whom you have gifted to us as part of that that bridal gift Lord, would you help us to understand our preparation for the coming again of Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would stir in the hearts right now of of men and women, of students, of of children. Lord, you would stir in us a a sense of our, our need and your provision. Lord, I pray today, even as we're going to see several folks walk through the waters of baptism in this next service, Father, I I pray, Lord, that you would draw people to a saving faith in you today. And Father, I pray for those that name the name of Jesus Christ in this room right here, right now. Father, would you right now help us to be aware of your presence? Would you help us to so fix our life that we look toward the return of Christ Jesus, not in fear, but in faith. And that prompts us to live to please you more and more and more. Father, if we're still here, when you come back, may you find us full out doing that which you have called us to do. I'm just going to invite you just to be still in the presence of, of the Father for just a moment or two more.